Happy 2000 and what year is it again? 17, thank you all. Um, all right, so we are uh, today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. So if you got your Bibles, you want to uh, go ahead and turn there. Uh, I, we, are, we started a year ago in 1 Corinthians, so we've been here for a year, and we've got two chapters uh, left to go. Um, it turns out that chapter 15, I don't know if you know this or not, but it is not only the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians, it's actually the longest chapter in the New Testament. So we're going to be here for a while. I don't remember exactly, I didn't count them up, but I think it's 60, 60 some odd verses, some, somewhere in there. Um, so we're going to be here for, uh, for a few weeks in this, in this chapter. And even though we're getting near the end, I am really, really excited about this chapter because it covers a subject that is near and dear to my heart and probably should be near and dear to your heart as well, and that is uh, the subject of, of the resurrection. So the title of our lesson this morning is A Vain Faith, A Vain Faith. So I don't, there's, there's a lot of verses, we'll get through two of them uh, here this morning. Now, as I mentioned, the, ti- the, uh, the subject of this chapter is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, it reminded me, as I, as I started studying it a couple weeks ago, it reminded me of a story that I heard one time. This, this Christian man was in an art gallery, and uh, he was browsing through and looking at, at some of the paintings, and he noticed this, this young boy uh, off to the side standing there looking at a picture of Jesus uh, hanging on the cross. And so... The, the, the Christian man, the older man, was, was curious, so he walked up to this little boy and he said, Hey, young man, do you know what that is a, uh, what, do you know what that is a picture of? And the, and the boy said, Well, sir, that's a, that's a picture of our Lord hanging on the cross uh, and dying for, for our sins. And, and the man was like, Well, yeah, that's, that's right. And he was pleased, you know. He said, Well, that's a, that's a good answer, son. And, so, and then he, you know, he, he walked on and continuing browsing throughout the gallery and looking at at pictures, in a few minutes, he felt a little tug on his on his shirt sleeve, and he looked down, and that little boy was was standing there. And the boy looked up, and he says, "Excuse me, sir." He said, "I forgot to tell you the whole story. He arose. I forgot to tell you the whole story. He's not dead anymore. He's alive." Now, guys, I don't know if you know it or not, but that is the heart of the gospel, right there. That Jesus Christ is not in the tomb anymore he is alive and just like the heart pumps blood to to our arms and our legs and every other part of our body the resurrection is the heart and soul of the gospel without it there is no gospel without it there's no christianity without it there's there's nothing um the resurrection is the pivot on which everything that we believe in turns if you take away the resurrection Christianity is just wishful thinking. Paul says, and he'll tell us this later, without the resur- if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, you might as well go home, eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. In other words, just go live your life however you want it, because when you die, it's over. There's nothing else. Without the resurrection, Christianity is just human wisdom. It's just human philosophy. It's just an, an, an invention of, of men. It's just something somebody came, came up with it. And Christians down throughout the ages have banked their life, their hope, their eternal destiny on this one promise that Jesus made. In John 14, 9, Jesus said this, Because I live, 
you will live. Because I live, you will live. You understand, if he doesn't live, there's no hope for us. There is no, there is no afterlife. There is no heaven. There's, there's nothing. But Jesus said, because I live, you live. And I know that I'm banking my hope on that promise, and I hope that, that you are as well. And if you go back through time, and you understand how important the resurrection is. In fact, it was this belief, and this belief alone, that turned a bunch of broken-hearted followers who thought he was dead. They were hiding in a room. And the next thing you know, they turn into to, to, to men and women who are willing to die for, for Christianity, to die for their beliefs. Why? Because they had seen the risen Savior. Go back, go back and read it. Remember what the world tried to do. First, they chastised them. And they, they, they said, don't preach like this anymore. Don't preach in the name of Jesus. And then they beat them. And then they imprisoned them. And then they got to the point they started torturing them. And they finally murdered them. And it didn't matter. They, it, they could not shake them. They could not make them deny the truth and the reality of the resurrection. It, has, it was then and it will always be the foundation of our faith. Okay, it, 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 is, it is incredibly, incredibly important. And because that's true, what you'll notice is that the, the most fierce blows against Christianity down throughout the ages have always been made against the truth of the resurrection. Because if you, again, even the world knows, the devil knows, you wipe out the resurrection, you wipe out everything. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Without the resurrection, you lose Christianity, you lose eternal life, you lose the consequences of death, you, you lose it all. That's why the resurrection is, is always under attack. Listen, when it all said and done, it all comes down to this. Is Jesus Christ simply a, a crucified rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago, who was killed and whose bones lie rotting in some forgotten tomb. Is that true? Or is he in fact God as proven by the resurrection? You see, Romans 1.4, watch what Paul says. He's talking about Jesus. He said he was declared the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Jesus says, that's God saying, that's my boy. That man is who he said he is. Everything he said is true. The, the resurrection validates that Jesus Christ is God himself, that he is the Son of God, the very nature of, of God. It validates that. You cannot dismiss, you cannot overlook how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. In fact, it's so important, you cannot, listen to me very closely, you cannot be saved without believing in the resurrection. You cannot be saved without believing in the resurrection. Romans 10, 9 says this, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and what? Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. See, you have to believe in the resurrection. You can't be saved without it. I know there are people that say, there are people out there in the world today that say they're Christians but yet they don't believe in the resurrection. Well, that makes... The Bible says that can't, that can't be true. In other, if you don't believe 
Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible is very clear. You cannot be saved. So we know that people who deny the reality of the resurrection, they might call themselves Christians, but they're not. One of the examples that comes to my mind is Thomas Jefferson. A lot of times I'd grow up reading how all of our forefathers in this country were Christians, men like Thomas Jefferson were Christians. Folks, Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. The man had his own Bible. We've talked about this before, right? It's in the Smithsonian. Go home and Google it. The man had his own Bible where he ran in and he, he took out the pieces that he didn't think were true. Anything supernatural, Jesus walking on the water, Jesus healing the, the, the withered limb, Jesus turning water into wine, Jesus raising, uh, rising from the dead, he cut it out of his Bible. He had his own Bible called the Jefferson Bible. It's in the Smithsonian. He took out all that stuff because he didn't believe it. See, you can call yourself a Christian, but if you don't believe in the resurrection, the Bible says you cannot be saved. You must believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Even today, I, I, I hope this is true in your life. I know. Listen, we all have doubts. We all have doubts from time to time. That's natural. John the Baptist, John the Baptist was in prison, and he sent a message to Jesus. Anybody remember what the message was? Are you the one? This is John the Baptist who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a few weeks later, he's in prison. And he sends a message to Jesus. He says, Are you the one or should we look for another? Everybody has doubts. But you see, we have something that John the Baptist didn't have. We have the resurrection. You see, there's times that I have doubts. And what about this or what about that? And every time it always circles back, Yeah, but he rose from the dead. It's like, I believe it. I, I hope you do. But I literally believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And those doubts just seem like little mosquito bites. They're just little things. But it all comes back to, man, he rose from the dead. I can't get away from that. He is who he said. I may not understand that, or I may not understand this, or I may not understand that, but he rose from the dead. And I, and I believe it. And that changes, that changes everything. Now... Whether Jesus rose from the dead, that's, there's never been any question about that amongst Christians, right? Because we just said true Christians always believe in the resurrection because you have to in order to be a, a true Christian. That's, that's the bottom line. And the same thing was true in the Corinthian church. Those people in the Corinthian church, they were Christians. They, they were messed up Christians. They were Christians with a lot of problems. But the fact was they were still Christians. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They weren't denying that. What they were denying in the Corinthian church was the bodily resurrection of believers. Okay, They believed Jesus rose from the dead. What they were having trouble believing was whether they would rise from the dead. So as we wade into 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, what you need to understand is it's not written to prove the resurrection to Christians. As I said, Christians already believe that. And it isn't written to try to convince unbelievers <clears throat> that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not, that's not the purpose of it. It is written to try to prove to Christians that because He rose, they will rise. Because He rose, they will physically, literally, personally themselves rise from the dead. That's what the 15th chapter is all about. 
And that's why, folks, it's such a great chapter, because it's still relevant today. It's still for you and me. This chapter is telling you and me that you will rise from the dead. That when you die, there's something else coming. And it's not just that your spirit's going to go up and float on a cloud. He's he's proving to us that you and I will be united once again with our bodies. Okay, that's what this 15th chapter is all about. Now, here's a quick question. Why did he have to do this? What was going on in, in Corinth and in the Greek culture that made them have a problem with believing in the bodily resurrection? Why did they have such trouble with with believing that? Well, to order to answer that question, you need to understand a little bit about Greek culture and Greek society and Greek philosophy. Now, Greek philosophy, which is what all these people were, were raised up in, Greek philosophy denied that there was such a thing as a bodily resurrection. So just think for a minute, if you had been taught your whole life The body dies, rots, and goes in the ground, and the spirit goes somewhere. You've been taught that your whole life. And all of a sudden you get saved, and Paul is saying, oh, no, no, that's not true. The body itself will be raised as well. Well, you could see you might have some trouble grasping that, right? Well, that's exactly what happened with people that came out of Greek culture and Greek philosophy. Let me give you an illustration of Greek philosophy. We'll see this in Acts 18. Paul is in Athens. And he's waiting for some friends of his in Athens to come. And, he, and while he's there, he gets, you know, Paul, he's always got to be doing something. I'm sure Paul, if there was ever a type A personality, it was Paul. He had to be doing something. And so it says this, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. In other words, Paul would walk out in the street and he would see all the things that was going on in this culture, in this society, and his spirit was provoked. Does any of your spirits ever get provoked when you open the newspaper or open the internet and look at what's going on? That's exactly what happened to Paul. So Paul did this. He would go into the marketplace, and it says he would reason with those in the marketplace every day who happened to be there. He would just go down and start a debate with them. And, and so what he, he would do is he'd come across some of these philosophers. Now, back in the Greek day, they had different strains of philosophy. They had one strain of, of, of philosophers they called the Epicureans. They had a, another strain of philosophers they called the Stoics. Um, and he would go in there and he'd see these people teaching and debating, and he would just jump right in the middle of it and start to talk with them. And some said, when they heard Paul, some says, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities or foreign gods. Why? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now watch this. Now when they heard of the resurrection, they did what? They mocked. You see, there was no place in their belief system for a resurrection of the dead. Listen, they knew, they worshipped a lot of gods. In fact, we, we hear in the book of Acts, they actually had a monument, just in case they had overlooked a god, they actually had a monument or, or, a, or an altar to the unknown god. 
So it, they didn't have a problem necessarily with Paul coming in and saying, hey, there's this other God you guys have, have overlooked. They didn't really have a problem with that. The problem they had was when they said that this God rose from the dead because they thought that was just the stupidest thing they, they had ever heard. They, they had no place in their belief system for that. You see, they had no place for a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. So when Paul comes preaching this, because of that part of his message, they immediately said, whoa, wait a second, that's ridiculous. You know, and they, and they mocked him because that made no sense to them. Now, why? Why would they have such a problem? Well, in Greek philosophy, if you go back and you study it, they believe something called philosophical dualism, okay? And it's a big word, and, it's, it's, and we've all, everybody here heard of Plato? At some point in your life, you heard of a guy named Plato. Well, Plato lived in, I don't know, 300 B.C., somewhere in there, and he, he was a big, all the Greek philosophy came from him. He had all this philosophy, and, and the Greeks had bought into this culture-wide. Um, and, and this is what Plato believed. Plato believed in something called philosophical dualism. And basically, it's real simple. Anything that's physical, that's made out of matter, is bad. Anything that's spiritual or that's of the soul is good. That's called dualism. Okay, Very simple. The physical is bad. Spiritual is good. Okay, And in fact, they believe that when they died that the body, which is bad, right? They just believe it went into the ground and it rotted and whatever, and your soul or your spirit went off into immortality. In fact, they actually had a proverb for that. It says, the body is a tomb, and I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. See, they just believe the body is bad. The body is a tomb. The body is evil. The spirit is good, and it needs to be released from the, from the body. Plato said this, the body is a prison that binds the spirit and the man waits to be released from his prison. So the idea to Plato that you would release, the idea that the spirit would be released and then somehow be rejoined to the body, that was ridiculous because the body was evil. Men were yearning to be released from the, from the body. That was the whole focus of his philosophy. Celsus, who was a Roman who lived around 220 A.D., he attacked the idea of the Christian resurrection with these words. He says, That is the hope of worms. For what soul of a man would any longer wish for a body that had rotted? See, the idea that you would want to go back to that, a body that had rotted, a body that had gone to dust, a body that was evil, they just had no idea, no concept of that in their own religions or in their own philosophy. So keep in mind, here are these Christian people, by the way, who are raised in this Greek culture, right? They're, they're raised with the idea the body is bad, the body is bad, the body is bad. So they had no problem believing that Jesus had been raised from the dead. After all, he's God. But they had a whole lot of problems with the fact that I would be raised from the dead, that my body would come out of the grave and be re reunited. They had a whole lot of trouble believing that that would ever happen for them. Now, Paul points this out. The whole, as we said, the whole idea of chapter 15 is to prove to them that, yes, that's going to happen. And, and the whole crux of the chapter is, is laid out in verse 12. Paul says this, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
So Paul is saying to them, if Jesus is rose from the dead, how can you say that you won't rise from the dead? That's the whole crux of the, of the chapter right there that Paul is going to de- deal with. So once again, in this chapter, as we, as we walk into it this morning, and we'll only get a couple of verses, the idea here is Paul is not trying to deal with the immortality of the soul. The, the Greeks had no problem with that. The Corinthian church had no problem with that. They believed they were going to heaven. They believed they'd be reunited with Christ. They just didn't believe they would have a body. So Paul's purpose here is to deal with the resurrection of the body. That's what this chapter is is all about. Now, in the first 11 chapters, Paul is going to lay some common ground. He's going to begin by restating the gospel. He's going to restate what the Corinthians believe, what you and I believe, that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose physically from the dead. Okay, he's going he's to restate that. We're only going to get through two verses this morning because I need, to, I need to, to cover something. Let's read verses 1 through 2. Paul says this, Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless... You believed in vain. Let me read that one time, one more time. We're only going to do two verses this morning. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, Paul is writing, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, which you took in, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved, if, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you had believed in vain. Now, This is why I'm going to stop at verse 2 this morning and only get two verses. Is Paul saying that it's possible to lose your salvation? Is Paul saying that it's up to you to hold on? And if you don't hold on, you can lose your salvation and go to hell. Is Is that what Paul is saying here? And I think this is so important we don't just go by it we just, we, we stop and, and we deal with this. Now, here's what I want you to understand. And I'll tell you in just a minute what I believe. And you can believe something different and be wrong, and that's completely up to you, you know. But just, that's okay. Now, what I want you to understand, when the Bible, and this is so important, folks. This, I've seen people reach into the Bible and pull out a scripture and say, See? See? But you see, the Bible, you have to always read the Bible as a whole. You can't just read one scripture. Because a lot of times, the Bible always strikes a balance when it's talking about salvation. Sometimes the Bible will, and and we'll use an example here in a minute, sometimes the Bible will look at salvation from God's perspective. And then sometimes Paul will write a verse and he'll look at salvation from our perspective. Does that make sense? He, he, it, sometimes, and, he, and I'll show you one later, where he actually looks at it from both perspectives. In other words, Paul always balances the sovereignty of God, what God does in salvation, and he always balances that against the responsibility of man. There's always a balance in the Bible. Let me give you, a, let me give you an example. As I said earlier, sometimes a scripture will look at salvation from God's viewpoint. Let's look at Romans 8, 29 through 39. I'll read this, and you tell me who's in play here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger and sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither life nor death nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that, those verses are all about salvation. Now you tell me who's in play there. See, that's all about God. God justifies, God calls, God glorifies. Who shall, if God is for me, who can be against me? Who shall separate me from the love of Jesus? Nobody, nothing. See, that, everybody with me? That's all from about, that's, that's God's perspective. It's all about God doing it. But yet the same Paul who penned those words writes today's verses. Now look at today's verses. Now I would remind who? You, brothers and sisters of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now you tell me, who's in play there? We are. See, he's talking to you. In one verse, he's saying, this is God. God saved you. God chose you. God regenerated you. God did that. On these verses, he's saying, now, you've got a responsibility. Here's what you need to do. Everybody with me? That's just incredible. The Bible never says salvation is all God. And the Bible never says salvation is all man. There's always a balance between what God does and what he expects us to do. See, looking at it from the human standpoint, Paul is saying that a true Christian is going to be known by the fact that they continue to believe. Look at what Paul said again. What, by the way, what did he preach to them? He says right there, the gospel I preach to you, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, the gospel that I preach to you. See, what he's saying there is you've got to hold fast to the gospel. You've got to keep believing in the gospel. That's your responsibility. Keep believing that Jesus is who he said he was. Keep believing that Jesus rose from the dead. By the way, this isn't some new thing. It's exactly what Jesus himself said, Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, true Christians always last to the end. Always. Okay, and I'll show you something in just a minute here that's really cool. Somebody who goes along believing for a while and then leaves the faith gives evidence that they, were, in, in my opinion, are giving evidence that they were never saved to begin with. They have believed in vain. It was a worthless faith, a useless faith. There, there's so many scriptures about this. Paul calls this a dead faith. I'm sorry, James does. In James 2, 17 through 19, he says this, So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have any works, if it doesn't have any evidence, it's dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith 
by my works. And Paul, James goes on to say, even the demons believe and shudder. See, James says, you believe, you believe in God, and you think that's enough? Even demons believe in God. Even demons believe in God. They're not saved. they got no prayer of being saved, no chance of being saved. It's not enough to say, I believe. There has to be an evidence in your life. And I believe with all of my heart that one of the evidences that shows a true Christian is that true Christians always last to the end. They always last to the end. In Jesus' parable of the sower, and what I'm trying to show you this morning is there are always going to be people who will believe for a little while. Everybody with me? I want to show you this. There are always going to be people who walk down this aisle and they, 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 they pray a prayer and they might go get baptized at Lake Ellen, but it only lasts for a little while. The Bible never makes any bones about this. In Jesus' parable of the sower, or parable of the souls, if you prefer to call it that, he highlights four different responses to the gospel. And two of those are the hard ground and the stony ground. And I won't go back through it this morning because we don't have time, but if you go back and you read that parable, Jesus said the sower goes out to sow, and and the seed is the word of God, is it not? And he says some of this falls on what he calls hard ground. And, and this is somebody who receives the word, or, or they don't understand the word. They come in, they hear it, and they walk out, and the Bible says Satan plucks that message away immediately. It doesn't do anything in them. They, they're just, they got a hard heart, and they just walk back out, and it absolutely does nothing. But then he says there are some seed that falls on something Jesus calls stony ground. And this person is somebody who professes delight. I mean, when they hear the gospel and they hear the word, they say, man, that's the best thing I ever heard. That, that, that's, that's the answer. This is what I've been looking for. And so they come down, and, and if you go back and read the parable, they're happy. They receive the word with delight. They accept it, and they even seem to believe it for a little while. But, but if you go on and read it, he says their heart is not changed. And as soon as trouble arises, they fall away. Everybody remember the parable? It's only for a little while, okay? There's another one that he, that he calls the thorny ground. This is also somebody who, you'll go back and read it, who, who accepts the word, receives it joyfully. They said, man, this is great. This is the answer to all I've been looking for. But Jesus says their heart is so full of the things of the world... And eventually, all that stuff that's in their heart takes their mind and, their, and, and takes them away from the truth of the gospel, and they fall away. See, there are always going to be people who just believe for a little while, and eventually they, they walk away. You see, if you go back and you read that parable, these are both cases where people believed. Okay, They accepted. They had a measure of faith. But listen to me. It was a faith born out of human emotion. Maybe. Maybe it was a, 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 a faith born out of need. I, listen, I've, I've, I've discipled and mentored some people who came down and got saved, and it only took me a little while to realize the reason they got saved is because they wanted Jesus to solve all their problems. They thought Jesus was the answer to get put their marriage back together. They thought Jesus was the answer to get them out of financial difficulties. But they never just wanted Jesus for Jesus. And eventually, they, they, they might come for a little while, 
but eventually they, they fade away and they fall away. Because what happens, it, it was never a faith born from the Spirit of God. Everybody with me? It was a, ba- a faith born out of emotion. It was a, ba- a faith born out of need. It was a faith maybe even born um, uh, 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 because everybody else is doing it. But it was never a faith that was truly born from the Spirit of God. It wasn't, they weren't a new creation. They weren't, it wasn't the Spirit of, they had never been born again. Because those people last. Those people in, endure. In John 6, show you another couple cases. Jesus is speaking, by the way, to his disciples. Somebody tell me what a disciple is. What's a disciple? A follower. Jesus is speaking to people who are following him. And he said this, but there are some of you who do not believe. And he goes on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and followed him. What? No more. You see, there was, even in his day, there were men and women that were following him. But when the times got too tough, when the teaching got too hard, it says they turned back and followed him no more. You see, see, they believed, maybe they believed in a king. Maybe they believed in somebody who was going to overthrow the Romans. I don't know what they believed, but they didn't believe in Jesus just for Jesus. And, and when the times got tough, they turned away and followed him no more. In John chapter 8, watch this. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And as he's teaching, as he was saying these things, what's those four words? Many believed in him. Okay? Now this is great. Jesus is teaching, and they, they come then they believe in him. So we're, we're, we're doing great right here. Now watch what Jesus says. So Jesus said to the Jews, what's those words? Who had believed in him. Once again, he's talking to people who have some measure of faith. He's talking to people who have accepted the word. He's talking to people who believe in him. And he said this, If you abide in my word, if you stay in my word, if you dwell in my word, if you live in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Everybody see that? And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, Jesus knew that. There's always going to be, again, be people who believe because of emotion or because of need or because all their friends are doing it. But Jesus says, if you stay in my word, if you remain in my word, if you abide in it, then you're truly my disciples. See, the idea here is if you endure, then you'll know that you're truly my disciples. James said the same thing, James 1, 22 to 25. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and what? Perseveres. You have to persevere. True Christians persevere. They remain, they stay in the Word of of God. In Hebrews, there is a wonderful verse. And we can all quote half the verse. I can guarantee you everybody in this room can quote half the verse of Hebrews 10.38. Hebrews 10.38 says, The just shall what? Shall live by faith. Does anybody know what the rest of that verse says? 
That's not the whole verse. We think it's the whole verse, but it's not. But if any man draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. The just shall live by faith. Let me tell you, let's go back to the first part of that verse, because I love the first part of this verse. If, just take that and, and go meditate on it. Just take that verse right there and go meditate on it this week. The just shall live by faith. What is that saying? You see, what he's saying is you can tell a just man, a just man, a man that's really been changed, a man that's really been a man or a woman that's been regenerated, that's been born again, that's been justified. They live by faith. What does that mean? It means you don't have a period of faith. You don't just have an experience of faith. It is your life. Does everybody see that? It's, it doesn't just last for a little while. It stays. You live by faith. I love that. The just man, the just woman lives by faith. They don't just have it for a little while. It is their very life. It is who they are. It is what they are. See, Christians, true Christians, are those who do not draw back, but continue to the believing, to the saving of the soul. But a false Christian a false disciple, one who's in it for something else or for some other reason, someone with empty faith, vain faith, will always fall back. Colossians 1, 22 to 23. I mentioned earlier that sometimes the Bible gives you salvation from the perspective of God. Sometimes it gives you the perspective of man. Sometimes it does both. Look at this verse. This is Once again, this is Paul. He said this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Look at the first part of that verse. Who's doing the work? Who has reconciled you? God has done it. You, by the way, you were alienated. You were hostile. Everybody see what that says? You didn't want him. You were hostile in mind. That means you were his enemy. You, had, you wanted nothing to do with him. It says you were, you were just off doing evil deeds. You were happy. You didn't need anything to do with God. And it says he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's salvation from God's perspective. Now watch the next part. If... Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. How do you know that you've truly been reconciled? You keep on keeping on. You don't turn back. You just keep on and you keep on and you keep on and you keep on. And you look up one day and you're at the end and, 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 and you've, you, you've spent your whole life, you spent the, whenever, from wherever you were saved to the time you die, you do not quit. You do not turn back. 1 John 2.19 says this, They went out from us. These are people that left the body. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? They'd have stayed. If you had really been of the body, if you had really been born again, if you had really been a Christian, you stay. Because that's what Christians do. But they went out so that it would be shown that they're not all of us. You see, staying to the end, 
I, let me just put out there what I believe. I do not believe you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that's possible in any way, shape, or form. Now, there are people that disagree with me, and like I said, if you want to be wrong, that's perfectly, that's perfectly your right to, to do that. But listen, Jesus saved me. He regenerated me. I've been born again. I am a new creation. I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, which Paul says is a guarantee of my inheritance. I'm already seated with, with Christ in heavenly places. My inheritance, inheritance is waiting on me. He did all that. I didn't do it. It's by grace. Listen, if I could lose it, I would lose it. Can I tell you all that? You know yourself. You tell me. If you could lose it, would you lose it? Absolutely you would. I need the Holy Spirit to, to keep empowering me and keep saying, come on. And by the way, I believe that with all my heart. I believe that the day I was saved, I was, I was saved. It, it, was, it was a done deal because of all that I just said. However, every Sunday I come in here and I exhort and I encourage and I admonish and I say, I say come on, you can do it. Because that's how it works out in practice. You see, in reality, I'm already seated with Christ. In reality, my destiny is set. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. But in practice, you know how we work it out? We encourage one another. We admonish one another. We exhort one another. Come on, you can do it. We, we love one another. That's how we keep each other going. One is the sovereignty of God. The other is the responsibility of man. That's why I'm here every week. That's why you're here, isn't it? I don't believe anybody. I, I don't believe I could just go sit at home and do nothing. No, because the Holy Spirit's inside of me saying, you can do it. You can do it. Come on, come on. Exhort somebody else. Go alongside that brother. Link arms with them. Pull them up. See, that's how it works out in, in practice. You see, I think when it's all said and done, we all understand this. We all understand there's always going to be a lot of people. Pastor Henry talked about it last Sunday, didn't he? In 2016, we baptized 97 people. How many of those 97 people are here? I don't know. But I can tell you, all 90, are all 97 of them here? No, they're not. See, a lot of them you don't see anymore. See, we understand there's always going to be people who respond to the gospel, but not all of them are legitimate. They're not all real. We, we know that. Jesus knew it. John knew it. James knew it. Paul knew it. They all, we know it. Okay? There will always be people who make decisions on emotion. There will always be people who do it because God will solve all their problems. There will always be people who are doing it because they jump on the bandwagon. When I was a youth pastor here, one of the things I would preach to the kids, because kids do that. In a youth group, you see that all the, when you get in a... They're all, they're all serving God, and a lot of them serving God because other people are doing it. They're all doing it because their friends are doing it. And I would always tell them... The, here, the test is going to come when you walk away from this youth group and you move out to college. Is it real? Do you have a connection? Do you have a faith with Jesus Christ that keeps you on keeping on? Or were you just held to the church because all your friends were doing it? The test is going to come. Life is going to come. And life will tell the test. Are you going to keep on keeping on? We understand all that. We understand there's always going to be a faith that not, that's not necessarily inspired by the Spirit of God. And that's what Paul is saying today. That type of faith is vain. It's worthless. It, it's empty. Okay? 
when all is said and done, there's long, no long-term commitment. Now, I'm going to close with this. Why did I spend so much time on this today? Because I want to remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He's writing to the church. He says this. He's writing to you and me. Examine yourself. Test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. You see, it's easy for me to sit here this day and say, you know, there's going to be people who, who, who profess a faith in Jesus, but they're not really saved. And you can say, amen, brother. But see, that's not what Paul says. Paul says, test yourself. Examine yourself. Are you truly in the faith, or, is you, are you just, or do you have a vain faith? Test yourself. Examine yourself. You see, you and I are never to take our faith for granted. We are to always be looking at our faith to make sure that it's true and vibrant and alive, not, not empty and vain. It's not just something that's going to you know, go along for a while and then, and then die out. So how do you do that? How do you test yourself? How do you know that your faith is real? Well, John tells us, 1 John 2, 3 through 5. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him. How do you know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And it doesn't say because 15 years ago you walked down an aisle or 15 years ago you got baptized. That's not what it says, does it? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? John says, if we keep His commandments. If you keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. How do I know I'm saved? Let me tell you, I believe I'm saved. In fact, I know I'm saved. How do I know? Because I cannot go a day... I cannot go a day without the Word of God pressing down on me. And that's the, that's the only way I know to put it. It's like it's on top of me and I can't get away from it. When I deal with my wife, the Word of God is saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't say that. When I spend my money, the Word of God is on top of me, don't do it that way, that's not right. When I, when I everybody with me? When I have a decision to make in my life, the first thing that comes into my mind, what does the Word of God say? What would God say about this? I can't get away from it. I just can't. Well, what does that tell me? By this, we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Is the Word of God pressing on you? Are you keeping His commandments? See, the Bible says, test yourself, examine yourself. There is nothing, you know, Jesus said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do mighty works in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. See, folks, he's talking to church people. That's church people. Didn't we work? Didn't we usher? Didn't we sing on the praise team? Weren't we elders? Didn't we serve on the board? Didn't we teach Sunday school? Didn't we do those things? And he'll say, depart from me. I never had a relationship with you. Can you imagine anything worse than going through life thinking you're okay and then coming to the judgment day and finding out that you're not? Examine yourself. Test yourself. Are, are you obeying the word of God? Okay? Let's pray. Father.